We, after a whole bunch of weeks, are finally, I believe, at the end of this series called God Is. We've actually been on this journey for a long time because we started before Easter promoting a sermon series that we started the week after Easter, the second Sunday in April called Love Is. It's the same looking graphics just with the word love and the colors were inverted. And we went verse by verse through First uh, Corinthians chapter 13 and we ended every single one of those sermons the same way throughout that whole series. We talked about that thing that love is and then said, but that's the character and nature of God. God is love. The love is series ended every week with God is love. And every week I said, and he's infinitely more than that, which was the not so subtle teaser for the series that we launched then into the last Sunday in May. Uh, our summer series, God is fill in the blank. And we've walked through this uh, week by week since the first uh, last Sunday in May. And my plan going into the spring and setting all of this up was that last week was supposed to have been the last sermon in my little plan. This idea that, man, if God is knowable and revealed in this triune God who, because he's three, he's the only one who the will of a father can lay down his son and then birth us through his spirit, the, the power that God is Trinity. And this idea that because he's Trinity, that we're, we're three parts his family, that the father adopts us, that one day the bride uh, will stand before the son and will be married into the family and that the spirit births us again. We're born into that family all through the Trinity that he is, he's always been God, which means he's always been love. Creation was the overflow of that. This idea that he is faithful and he's rest. And because he's God, he has to have wrath against everything that offends him. He has to be just. But he's also mercy. And the victory is already completed on our behalf, past, present, and future. And then I wanted to come up the last week and say, and if all of that's true, what else could we need God is enough. Mic drop, end scene, cut, fade to black, curtain draw, ride into the sunset. <laughs> right? Like, wouldn't that have just been the, <laughs> like, God's enough, the end. That was my plan. Wouldn't that have been cool? And I just felt this stirring from God that we were supposed to have another week together. Not talking about necessarily a single attribute of him, but trying to have one more week to try in our finite little minds to glimpse the vastness of who he is. Not just an attribute at a time, but his godness. The idea that God is God is the thing that kept like just weighing on my heart. And so as I started to study the thing that I wasn't really prepared for and like, God, what is it that you want to say? And how are you wanting to say it? And what is that supposed to look like? And the more I studied, the more I sensed God drawing me to his name, to his being and his essence that we understand in his name. I've talked a lot about the significance of Yahweh 
a lot in the last 10 and a half years since I've been preaching 45 Sundays a year or whatever here. Like I've talked a lot about it. Uh, we did a whole series through the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Um, pretty much every, almost every time that we see capital L-O-R-D in the text, I remind you, don't forget, that's not the word Lord. That's the name of God, Yahweh. Most of the times we reference that. Right before the pandemic began, a couple weeks before the pandemic began, uh, we were at that time, I'm sure you don't remember, no big deal. Uh, we were going through the Ten Commandments, called it Ten Talks, and we had like the TED Talks decoration thing up here, if you remember any of that. And so one of the last weeks before we went uh, to our houses to do church um, was you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. And, and we spent about five minutes, not that I ever talk about anything, we spent about ten minutes talking about his name Yahweh on that Sunday. But in all the years I've been preaching, we've never, neither here nor when I was preaching before and as a youth pastor, I've never gone to Exodus 3, the burning bush, and really just spent a whole morning or a whole sermon really focusing on the power of the name Yahweh. And that's what I sensed God stirring my heart towards. And so that's where we're headed together. So grab your Bible this morning, um, and we're going to say our creed together before we jump in. We have some guests today, so let me just tell you, we have a tradition here. Uh, we say a creed about this book and a prayer together before we jump in, because uh, we think this is a pretty special book. And so if that's not where you're at on your spiritual journey, we're not trying to guilt you into saying this with us, and they're not magic words. Um, but if this does resonate with you, then join with us in our declaration this morning as we say this. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. We were in almost the tail end of the Old Testament last week and we're like almost in the beginning of it this week. Exodus chapter 3. While you're turning there, um, I, I want to say this. That it, it is really important that we walk into this story with a big picture perspective. This is the promise of God passed down through the flood, through the judgment of God, and specifically landing on Father Abraham, this promise that he would have many sons. A promise that would pass on to Isaac, his son, and begin to become more visible to us living on this side of history through his son, named Jacob, and later changed to Israel, who would have 12 sons, which would eventually go on to, to become 12 tribes. And as that family is growing, one of those 12 brothers ends up a slave in Egypt. The story of Joseph, uh, probably my favorite story in the Old Testament, all through the orchestration of God that Joseph would be positioned that when famine hits, that God pr could protect his children, the 12 tribes of Israel. They end up relocating, right? We've had some people move during the pandemic. Well, they moved during that pandemic of famine. Ended up relocated to Egypt. And what happened over the, the passing of time is this family is growing in power. The Pharaoh who invited them has died and a new Pharaoh has come into power. And he's intimidated by the magnitude of this growing family. And so he enslaves them into terrible living conditions, forced labor, terrible labor conditions as well. 
They are slaves for year after year after year after century after century. But because God always fulfills his promises, because on the darkest day his promises are still yes and amen, God had a plan. God had a plan through yet another unlikely source, an outcast, an adopted son who's now exiled to the desert named Moses. Verse 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, which just seems like a made-up name. You know what I mean? Like we got all the like Hezebubalabalab in the Bibles, you know? And then you got Jethro. <laughs> right? His father-in-law Jeff, Jethro, who lived in a double white no, um the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. I love this, comma, the mountain of God, but not yet. <laughs> like, anyways. Um, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Out of the midst of a bush, he looked and behold, the bush was burning and it was not consumed. This is one of those moments where the Bible just reads kind of bible and not necessarily real. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. No, he didn't. He went, what the what? <laughs> right? Like, anyways. Um, and Moses um, comes over to this bush that's burning and is not consumed. In verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. And I love that the first thing we hear the voice of Yahweh speak to him is his name. Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Um, in my study for this sermon, uh, listening to a lot of different sermons and reading a lot of different sermons and a lot of different books, um, one pastor actually asked his congregation for the rest of the morning, will you please remove your shoes as we read this text? And I'm just not sure with the construction going on that the ventilation system can really handle that this morning. So we're, we're just going to imagine that. Okay. Can we do that instead? Um, interesting, interestingly, there's a really well-known, uh, pastor, uh, who's also an evangelist. He travels around speaks at youth camps and stuff. Who his entire, he's about 10 years older than me, his entire preaching career, he has preached without his shoes on. Every time, dead of winter, whatever, wherever this guy preaches, he gets up to preach and the first thing he does is take his shoes off, preaches a sermon, puts them back on. It's pretty, he actually lost his life to COVID-19 last week, but, um, this idea that there's, when there's the voice of God, it's a holy moment. Take your shoes off, he says. He said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then as we start into verse 7, I want us to, to begin to understand this idea of our series, God is blank. And so... I want us to look at what God's doing, what he says he's doing in the next handful of verses, right? The Lord said, I 
have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. So the first thing God past tense was doing, right? I have seen. I've been looking your direction. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. So what was God doing? He was hearing. What was God doing? He was seeing. What is God doing? He said, I know. Whew. Man, that's good news. I know they're suffering. And then this is present tense well as well, even though he's kind of speaking it past. I have come down. His point is, here's what I'm doing. I'm showing up. I'm here. I'm here. I have come down. Oh, praise God, we have a God who comes down. And now he's going to start talking about what he will do. So what has he been doing? Seeing and hearing. What is he doing? He knows and he's present. What's he going to do? To deliver. To deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. To bring them. That's the second thing. I'm going to bring them out of that land to a different land. To a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel, he's going to repeat himself a little bit, has come to me. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now here's one more thing God's about to do. Come, I will send. So what has God been doing? Seeing and hearing. What is God doing? Knowing and showing up. What's he going to do? He's going to deliver. He's going to bring them to a land. And he's going to send somebody through whom he's going to make all this become reality. And then he says the next word to Moses, you, <laughs> I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? If there's any question that I believe our world, our culture, our society is obsessed with today, it's who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God doesn't even answer Moses about who Moses is. He says, I'll be with you. This will be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought this people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He said, who am I? He said, I'm with you. You're going to see this thing go full circle. You'll be back here one day, one day praising me on this real estate. And everything changes in verse 13 because Moses begins to ask a different question. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? This crucial transition, Moses stops asking, who am I? And he starts asking, who are you? And we can't possibly begin to answer the first question without first answering the second question. We never can know who we are until we first know who God is. And as good as the question is, the answer is even better. It is the right question, God, who are you? But the answer changes 
everything. And here's the intimidating thing before I even read this text about the magnitude of this answer. I stand here about to read a text knowing I can't begin to scratch the surface of. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. You want to talk about a mic drop. (laughs) I am who I am. And I, I know the text just keeps going, but I'm pretty convinced there was a moment of silence. And at some point in time, then he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I think there was another pause. And eventually God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of of Jacob has sent me to you. Then he finally says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses asks God his name. And something that I never noticed before is God explains who he is first and then says, and I guess you can call me that. And so it is true that he tells us to call his name Yahweh, but this is so much more than a name. It's so much more than just what would be on his birth certificate. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So back to verse 14. I am who I am. If we were translating the Hebrew into English, it would be the letter uh, Y-H, rather, W-H. We added vowels to that so it could be pronounced Yahweh. This is, I am. He did not say, it is what it is. R.C. Sproul said, that's the God of American ideology. It is what it is. But the God of the Bible is, I am who I am. (laughs) Which means I'm over whatever is. Whatever it is. And and this idea that, that God just is, is everything. So this whole sermon series, right, has been called God is fill in the blank. And each week we've tried to build another puzzle piece to the grand view of our God. And here's where we will end this series is by saying the most explicit, clear thing we can say about who the God of the Bible is. God is, period. He is. He's what? Yep. He's where? Yep. He is. Period. He so much is that it doesn't really matter whether we necessarily acknowledge him as God or not. He is. Whether we honor him as God, he is. Whether or not we worship him as God, he is. Whether or not we know him as God or accept him as God or even believe in him as God, 
He is. Period. He is who he is. He is the ultimate reality. He's the ultimate fact. The way that John Piper said this is God absolutely is. When, after over 30 years of ministry, when John Piper announced his retirement from Bethlehem Baptist Church and he had 10 weeks left to preach to the people he'd spent over three decades with, he spent a morning preaching on this text. And of all the things I studied for this sermon, it was profoundly helpful. And probably anything that you walk out of here with today, probably we get give honor to what God spoke through him in that sermon. Let me begin with this quote. That God absolutely is, is the most basic fact and the most ultimate fact. Period. Little detective Joe Friday. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Yes, and nobody knows what I'm talking about unless you're like old. Yeah, come on, where you at? Lance is with me. Of the billions of facts that are facts, this fact is at the bottom and at the top of all other facts. Here's how Piper said it. It is the foundation of all other facts and the consummation of all other facts. Nothing is more basic and nothing is more ultimate than the fact that God is. Nothing is more foundational to this church than that God is. Nothing is more foundational to your life or your marriage or your job or your health or your mind or your future than that God is. Nothing is more foundational to the world or the solar system or the Milky Way or the universe itself than that God is. Nothing is more foundational to the Bible, the self-revelation of God. Nothing is more foundational to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ than that God is. It's why he says it again and again and again in his word. I am. I am. Whatever else is, I am. Over 4,000 times in the Hebrew scriptures, I am, is the reminder from the heart of God. And the fact that he spoke it twice in this text before saying it was his name is almost like he's telling Moses, before you worry about my name, Like to compare me to all those gods in Egypt you learned about as a little boy. Like where do I line up with them or the gods of Babylon? Before you wonder about conjuring up my name, which is what they would have done. Be stunned by this. I just am. I absolutely am. Again, Piper said, before you get my name, get my being. I am. Woo. And that I am who I am, that I am the ultimate reality, that I'm the quintessential fact above all other facts is the first foundational, most important thing in the universe. I am. He is. 
And this morning with the rest of our time, here's what I want us to do. Very quickly, I want to share only five of the infinite possibilities of what does it mean that God is. Five implications of what it means that God is. And then we're going to detour to that first question. Based on that, who am I? So five quick observations and then three about who we are in light of who God is. Number one, the fact above all facts that God is means he always has been. Because God is is this present tense verbiage. I am right. But if we pull the Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, that's not quite as old as Joe Friday. Does anybody know Bill and Ted? We doing any better there? Okay. So get into a phone booth. Y'all don't know what a phone booth is. Don't worry about it. If we crawl into a phone booth this morning and we go anywhere in eternity past and we pop out, there's God going, I am. Okay. Let's go back a little further. I am. Okay. Let's go back before the existence of time when there's nothingness, when all there is, is our phone booth and God goes, nope, I am. Right? That he always ams means he always has been. There's never been a moment in eternity past where we could go and God not be. His absolute being means he never had a beginning. Which is hard to grasp. That's why little kids ask us, mommy, who made God? And we're like, nobody. He always has been. And they go, huh? And we go, I know, right? He just is. And that might feel like a really incomplete answer, mom and dad, but that is good theology. Before he created anything, all that was, was the one who is. The fact that God is means he's always been. And number two, you can probably tell where I'm going. The fact that God is means he always will be. Because if we hop back in the phone booth and we go to eternity future, there's nowhere that we won't pop out and him go, yep, still here. I still am. There will never be a moment in eternity future that God's absolute being will be anything less than absolute. He will never end. He did not come into being. He cannot go out of being because he is being. He is. He always was. And he always will be. Number three, the fact that God absolutely is means everything else that is must submit to him. Because he is, always has been, and always will be, then every other lesser reality must submit to the absolute ultimate reality that God is. He's the most real thing there is. And every other reality is under his governance, his authority, and his jurisdiction. There's no reality outside of his reality unless he makes it and wills it. That means it's his. Which means life can make no sense apart from knowing him. I can't find meaning or purpose apart from the ultimate reality. And when my feelings about reality contradict his view of reality, I must submit to his reality as the ultimate reality. 
regardless of my feelings. Because he absolutely is. The fact that God is means he always has been. It means he always will be. It means that everything else that is must submit to him. And number four, the fact that God is means he doesn't need anything. He's totally sufficient in himself. Some theologians call this phrase, Yahweh, the self-sufficiency of God. He is independent of any other fact that's ever been. If he is absolute reality, then he is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or to support him or to counsel him or to make him what he is or to make him feel good about himself or to complete him. That's what the word absolute means. God doesn't need us to make sure that he's happy. We don't have to work to, uh uh-oh, we need to defend God so that God's okay. Listen, he doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need Texas. He doesn't need the United States. He doesn't need anything else in all of creation. He is. And worship is not about satisfying him or appeasing him or making sure that he's doing okay. He's doing just fine. Here's how fine he's doing. He is. What worship is, is just a response to the ultimate reality of the greatness of our God. He is. Which makes him unlike any God that humankind has ever created in human history. I got to keep moving. The fact that God is means he always has been. He always will be and every other fact must submit to him and he needs nothing. Here's the fifth thing we'll say about the I amness of God. The fact that God is means he's the most important reality that's ever existed. If he alone is absolute then he alone is of the highest value. He alone is worthy of our affection and our attention and our allegiance and our adoration. He is the most important and most valuable thing in the universe. More worthy of our enjoyment. More worthy of our our commitment There's none greater and there's none beside him because he alone is. So what does that mean for us? Now we ask the question of Moses, who am I? In light of who you are, who am I? Three things. The fact that God is means I am not I am. The fact that God absolutely is means I absolutely positively am not him. And this is so, I pray you'll hear my heart this morning from, 
from a heart of compassion that this is the reason it will never work to look inside of ourselves to find ourselves. It will never work for me to look within me to discover me. Because I am not I am. I cannot look within me and find my meaning and my purpose or my gender and sexuality or my own ethics or my own identity because I am not I am. I'm not the ultimate reality. And what's interesting is today the the statements that are being fought over among conservatives and those who are not, and especially around sexual ethics, all of those statements begin with those words, I am. We're celebrating the boldness of people saying, I am cisgender, or I am whatever in my sexuality. And the fact is, I am not, I am. I'm only defined by the reality of the I am. And all my feelings about reality and struggles about reality submit to the authority of the I am. Which is not shaming or defeating. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love me and want me to express myself. It's the exact opposite. How freeing. I don't have to save me, fix me, figure me out. I don't have to pretend to be what I'm not. I am not I am. Thank goodness. Louis Giglio, in a great book that I won't tell you the title of because it's my next point. He said this. Admitting that we are not the I am. Admitting that we are not God. Not in control, not running anything, not responsible for everyone's well-being, not the solution for everything and everyone, not at the center of all things. Admitting that does not belittle us, it frees us. I am not I am. Here's the second thing it means. The fact that God is means I am not, but I know I am. I'm not, but I know the I am. What a gift. What a privilege. Which is the name of Lily Giglio's book, I Am Not, But I Know I Am. It's a great book. We have some available this morning. You can buy it. I am not, but I know I am. Maybe at the end of the day, it really is all about who you know. I don't know this morning my parents' religion. I don't know a set of beliefs. I don't know an ideology. I don't know a worldview. I know the great I am. I know the absolute reality in the midst of a day, let's be real, of incredible confusion. An incredible division. What a joy to know the ultimate reality. The God who is. That God is means I am not I am, but I know I am. And number three, that God is means I am not, but I am known by I am. Man, 
I don't think there's a single important, powerful person in the world who knows me. But the great I am knows me. Sees me. And is on the move to be present. To deliver me. (laughs) To bring me out into a better thing. I'm known by the ultimate reality. Personally. Like... Little old me. How incredible. And so this this grand view of God doesn't end up in us having poor self-image and terrible self-esteem. And I'm just a little ant. No. That clarity brings perspective to the magnitude of his love for me. That he's all that and he knows me. He's acquainted with my griefs. The absolute reality knows you today. And I don't know how you feel today. It's shocking how frequently, it's shocking to the point that you would think it wasn't shocking anymore. And how frequently I'm shocked to hear one of you say to me, I've been struggling with fill in the blank for months, and nobody knows. I've been struggling with whatever for a year and nobody knows. I don't know what you feel today. I don't know really what life looks like for you today. I don't know what disappointments you walked in here carrying today or got online carrying today. I don't know what fears are weighing on you today. I don't know how you feel about you how you feel about those around you or what you think they feel about you. I don't know. But I know this. God is. And he knows you. This God who's knowable and revealed, this triune unlike any other God who saves us and adopts us and births us and marries us into this family. This God who is love, who's faithful, who's rest, who fights for justice and extends mercy. This God who is ultimate victory. This God who satisfies the longings of the human heart. He is. And he's infinitely more than all of that. He absolutely is. Do you know him today? Last night, we had a really pleasant surprise. Garrett got off work early on a Saturday night from Chick-fil-A. And we were able to have a family movie tonight, which is like one of our favorite things to do. And by our, I mean all of us except for Marisa. She just usually falls asleep or does something else. She's like, if I have to watch one more movie about, like, aliens and superheroes. But last night, we watched Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a great movie. Uh, Temple Ministries cannot fully endorse all the language used in that movie. This is your disclaimer. <laughs> Use a filter or watch it on TV or whatever. Um, we watched this movie, Ford versus Ferrari. After I finished preaching a youth camp in Tennessee a couple weeks ago, we were right near Gatlinburg, and so we went to Gatlinburg for two days. And while we were in Gatlinburg, Ethan got to see one of the cars, 
one of the Fords used in that movie, like actual, and he got to sit and got his picture taken with it. It was really cool. Well, ever since then, we've all wanted to watch this movie because we hadn't seen it yet. And I won't spoil anything about the movie except to say how it begins and ends. But actually not with the plot, don't worry. It starts with abstract images and movement of cars with a voiceover, super dramatic. It's Matt Damon's voiceover. Uh, He's playing the character of Carol Shelby, Shelby Cobra, that guy. And he speaks really dramatically about how the whole world changes when you hit 7,000 RPMs. And then he does the same speech at the end of the movie with different video role. Same little talk, same little speech, beginning and ending. But both times he ends this talk about the power of 7,000 RPMs in a vehicle by saying this. Let me ask you a question. The only question that matters, who are you? This movie, let's keep it real, about a car. Starts and ends with, let me ask you a question. The only question that matters, who are you? And I don't know if Carol Shelby ever really said that. But I want to argue with whoever wrote that script. Because this morning I want to ask you a question. Eternally, the only question that matters. Who is your God? Because the more you know the answer to that question, the more you will know who you are. You will not stand before the throne of your own making. One day you'll stand before his. The reason this book is so important is not to know facts. It's not to appease God by reading words on a page. It's that as we interact with the living, breathing life in this book, we understand in a deeper way who God is. And that is where everything begins that we want out of life. All meaning, all purpose, all understanding, all clarity in the confusion, all peace in the storm begins not with knowing who you are, but knowing who your God is. Here's who I believe he actually is. He is. He is the one who is.